everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. I'm really excited to jump into my interview today with Rob Wolf, who is a former research biochemist and two-time New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Along with Diana Rogers, he co-authored the book Sacred Cow, which explains why well-raised meat is good for us and good for the planet. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, books, and seminars. He also co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate games in the world, the Healthy Rebellion community platform, and is the co-founder of Drink Element Electrolytes, and that's spelled Drink L-M-N-T. Okay, so let's jump into this episode where we talk about getting started with nutrition, with our wellness, with how to think a little bit differently about the structure of our day, when we eat, what we eat, all the good stuff. So without further ado, please welcome in Rob Wolf. Rob, welcome to Just Get Started Podcast. Glad to have you, man. Huge honor to be here. Thank you. Yeah, this is uh, exciting. I, I've been following your work for a lot of years, um, and I was like, this is this will be pretty neat to get you on the podcast because I, I always love to talk around fitness and nutrition and, and health and wellness. It's something I've tried to optimize in my life, gosh, the last probably four or five years, you know, with CrossFit that I do and, and trying to figure out, like, how do I actually get my body tweaked so I'm feeling the best? So I wanted to bring you on. I appreciate you coming and sharing some of your wisdom here from, from your years of doing this stuff uh, because I wanted to settle around healthy eating habits, the structure. One of the things when I talk with a lot of folks around anything around fitness and wellness, it's always the, I can't, I don't have time to eat healthy. I, I don't know what choices to make. There's too much information that's scattered on one side mm -hmm. or the other. Um, so I'm kind of curious to start, I, if we can, I'm going to start with this very broad question and then we're going to go down the rabbit hole. What does a healthy diet consist of? When, Man, you, when it, you hear that. It, it can be a lot of things. Like it can be different for different people. Some people tend to do better on kind of a vegan approach. Uh, folks like me, I have a bunch of gut and autoimmune issues. Like I have like six different autoimmune conditions and ulcerative colitis that nearly killed me uh, 23 years ago. So healthy diet for me means pretty low carb, like pretty much ketogenic. I can't do any gluten. Um, I even figured out that I'm reactive to dairy and eggs. Like I'm like this horrible canary in the coal mine type thing. So, but because this is what I need to do to manage my health, does that mean that that is what good? Yeah, not necessarily. So it really can be a, a, quite a few different things depending on the scenario, but the, the commonalities that we find are just kind of minimally processed whole foods. Like if it's something that our grandparents would have recognized as food, we're probably in, in at least the ballpark of, of where we're, we're looking at. If we look to traditional cuisine, whether it's Greek or Italian or Mexican or Southern cooking or what have you, again, if we peel back the, the, the uh, processed food invasion that has happened in our lives, if we go back two generations maybe of what traditional foods were, whatever culture you're from, we, we've got a damn good starting place. Like this tended to be minimally processed, largely whole foods, even in the, the you know, situation of like desserts and stuff like that. Usually those were intermittent. Yeah. Like my mom has this really crazy, it's so good, this cookbook from like the 1930s. And it, it's kind of, uh, 
it, it's recipes, but it's also for like the, the young new wife who's kind of getting going, being a homemaker and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So it had a bunch of like advice in there. Right. And one of the, the questions that was in the book was, uh, is it my, my husband wants a dessert every day? You know, is that okay? And the book said an emphatic no. And they were like, it is not okay. We're in this time of scarcity. Keep in mind, this thing was written during the Great Depression. Right. It's like, even if you have the resources to do that, that's gauche. Like we, you, you know, we, we, uh, there are people who are hungry. Um, once a week, a dessert on, on Sundays with family is acceptable. And beyond that, then it's, it's over the top. And I just found that really interesting, you know, that there was a time where dessert was actually like people were of a mind that like, no, you should just have dessert once a week. And that's, that's what's reasonable. And if when, when we were to change, when did that, was that just like, again, big, big business saying, Hey, we can, you know, get out food to more people and we can make it easier to sh the shelf life. Like I, I, it feels like that's it. It's like, you know, the macaroni and cheese can sit on the shelf for a year versus, you know, fruit that's going to get bad in a couple of weeks. You yeah. Know? Yeah, it, it over my shoulder, this book and film Sacred Cow, which mainly looks at like the ethical, environmental and health considerations of a meat inclusive food system, like a lot of concerns around like our ruminant animals destroying the planet because of methane gas and stuff like that. But we actually unpack the birth of the, the processed food you know, story within um, Western society. It started right around 1971 when, and there's a bunch of interesting things that came together there where um, financial incentives to, to provide subsidies for farmers produced this huge glut of food. We started producing far more food than what we could consume. And there were a couple of years there where like food was just getting made and destroyed because nobody would eat it. And then there became this uh, subsidy program to pump this food into food manufacturer laboratories to figure out how to extend the shelf life of this stuff. Mm. And right around this time, like we've known how to make high fructose corn syrup since the, the late 1800s, but it was right around this time that a cheap process was discovered for converting corn into high fructose corn syrup, which is uh, amazing for enhancing shelf life. Like sugar uh, it actually minimizes um, food spoilage because it it uh, prevents mold growth and all this other kind of kind of interesting stuff. And so there were a bunch of different things that kind of came together all at the same time. And where I when I was a kid, I'm I'm almost 51 now. But when I was a kid, there was the four food groups. It was like you know the meat and poultry group. There was a, a dairy group, a fruit and vegetable group, and then like a, a bread and grains group. And when you look at that, that was really a much more balanced approach than the thing that came after that, which was the food pyramid, which was like 12 servings of grains, then a bunch of fruit, then low fat dairy. And then on the top was, was kind of like animal proteins. It was supposed to be eaten really sparingly, but it becomes a very uh, refined carb top heavy story. And right around that time also fat became really demonized. And there was a period of time when the American Heart Association was putting its stamp of approval on things like snack welts, which were these non-fat um, cookies right, right. that they used all kinds of kind of crazy ingredients, but it had no fat in it, but but it, it, they would like double and triple the amount of sugar in it. And so they, this was kind of where, I, I mean, there's so many different things. This is um, 1970s are when um, many, many women started entering the workforce. 
So then we had latchkey kids. We didn't tend to have one parent at home cooking meals. So like prepared meals became this huge, you know, transition. Uh, processed food became much more accessible. I want to say it's something like 80% of food is eaten out of the home now. And then the stuff that is eaten in the home, almost none of it is cooked from scratch. And so this is kind of where we are. And, and just to put this in some context, or hopefully this puts it in some context, these foods are engineered to be what's called hyper palatable. Like there is enormous money spent on how to make this stuff as tasty and honestly as, as addictive as it can possibly be. Like the, the Lay's potato chip tagline is bet you can't eat just one. Yeah. And like, I'll, I'll take that bet all day long. You know, like you open up a bag of potato chips, like I'm, I'm not going to, to stop on that thing. And and people will feel bad. They'll beat themselves up. They're like, oh, I don't have discipline, I you know, all this stuff. But we are not wired for self-discipline. And that's kind of the topic of my second book, Wired, Wired to Eat. It talks yeah. about the neuroregulation of appetite and whatnot. And there was a study that I think illustrates this really, really well. They, they took folks and they gave them uh, basically unlimited amounts of peanut M&Ms, which I, I think are like one of the most amazing Oh, yeah. candies you could oh, get absolutely. they're salty they're crunchy yeah. they, they you, you know they're sweet like i i just think they tick all the boxes but they had three different scenarios for how people had access to these peanut m&ms one one group of people they had a bowl of peanut m&ms on their desktop like literally right in front of them another group of people they had a drawer in their desk that they had to scoot back open the drawer reach into the pan you know the bowl of m&ms and then they could eat them and the other one, they had to walk across the office and there was a central place where the M&Ms were located and people would tease each other going there. And it was understood when you started walking across the, the office, everybody would start like catcalling and everything, wow. you know, because you're, you're doing the walk of shame to go get the, the M&Ms. But simply shifting the M&Ms from the desktop to the drawer cut consumption in half. Moving it across the office cut consumption by 90%. So this proximity to good tasting processed food guarantees consumption. And this is one of these things that, that like in, in my books and when I've done seminars, when people are looking at making a change, like you really do need to kind of look at what you've got in the house you have in the pantry and make a decision around what, what is it that's going to wake you up and it, you know, right before you go to bed. And you're going to be in raiding the refrigerator because people don't get up and eat chicken breast and broccoli before they go to bed. It's ice cream and chips and, yeah. and that sort of stuff. And I really make the recommendation that you just clean the house out. And if you want to have things like nachos or ice cream or, or things like that, go out to eat, eat it there. Don't well, have it in the house because that, that proximity we will never win that. Like we, we, we never win that battle. You make a great point. Cause I actually, as I was mentioned earlier about trying to optimize and, and look at different where, and, and it's taken time to have that discipline, but people that come in my house, they laugh because they're like, Brian, you have no food in here. Like, cause I, right. I, I buy healthy every week. And when I say healthy, like it's a lot of, you know, meat and fruit and, you know, very minimal veggies, but uh, we can get into that. But, yep. um, you know, I, it's almost no processed food and having a 10 year old, you know, sometimes he always wants to snack. So I feel like I, I keep a few things just to whet his appetite at times, but yep. there's no ice cream. There's no anything. Um, but to your point, we like to go out every few weeks. There's a local, you know, a homemade ice cream, you know, spot nearby. Like I'll take him to every few weeks. Like, okay. 
but at least it's not in the house where I knew as a kid, oh my gosh, I used to probably go through that almost every day or every few days. So I think that is right. the big thing when you're creating new habits. You know, James Clear talks a lot about this in, in Atomic Habits is you, know, yep. you got to remove that. Yeah, remove it out of your way. If you make it difficult, you're going to have a, a better time to succeed. Yeah, it and it it's um we can set these speed bumps up both to help us and to hinder us. This is where like when you're trying to go start working out, say like um I would say 50% of the time my wife and I work out at home even though our, we're in Montana, the garage is cold like it it's not the best uh location but we're only 15 minutes to the gym, but like if it just snowed and I need to plow the driveway and, and, and right. you start right. layering these things on, it's like, okay, we're 45 minutes to an hour out from getting to the gym and our whole workout is going to take us 30 to 40 minutes total. So we're like, okay, screw it. We're just going to put on a lot of clothes, wear some gloves, and we're going to go work out in the gym. So those, those speed bumps, um, we can use them both to help us, but it, we we need to recognize when they're hindering us from getting something done, like one additional, in online marketing, it's understood that every additional click that, that somebody makes when you're trying to sell somebody something cuts your conversion rates in half, 50% less buy-in. That's the marketing side of this. What we're trying to do is market people to do healthy activities. And so every additional click, whatever that is, whether it's getting your car and driving to the, to the gym or, you know, this is where like, if you can go from work to the gym, then home, it's much better than if you go home and you get sucked into home life and everything, and then, you know, have an expectation to, to make it to the gym. So anywhere that can, we can reduce that friction is going to produce benefit. And then the flip side is like with food, if we can create some barriers between us and the food that we're, we're trying to maybe make a once in a while thing instead of an everyday experience instead of it being dessert every single right and it's not just every day now like people turn dessert into like every meal when you think about breakfast cereal you know sugary uh coffee drinks at lunch uh, yeah. and, and on and on it's like we have we have dessert like all day long yeah well it's so it's it's actually uh, funny more not haha i guess but just kind of interesting when you'll you'll see someone and that'll say oh yeah i just had a big hard workout at the gym and then they have that you know insert coffee with the pumpkin, you know, latte spices and the right. 30 grams of sugar. And I'm like, well, it's not maybe the best choice thereafter, but yeah. So I, I think going to the, the choices and being, and, and this comes back to like meal prep. I think about like, if you meal prep for the week, you're in a better chance to eat that healthier food because you've already put the time in an effort to actually make it. It's already prepared. It's easier versus if you're at, well, yeah. I know a lot of folks work at, you know, remote, like, like you and I probably do. It's, you know, when you go, uh, when you go out or people that go into the office, same thing. It's like, oh, I might as well just go out to lunch. I'll grab something quick versus, and it's kind of more of an experience versus actually having the food and just eating it and it, having that like input system of just making sure you have the right food. Right. Would you agree with that? It's yep. kind of the meal prep is maybe a route folks should look at or. It, it, absolutely. And I mean, I'm fortunate in that I, I work from home. We also homeschooled my, my two girls, which is great. But it's also, it's kind of funny, like the day just disappears. You know, we get up and we're, we're out, of the, out of the blocks pretty hard. And my wife and I, finally, it took us a while. Neither one of us are like super organized. Neither one of us are like spreadsheet type, type people and everything. But we finally got down when we wrote up a, a weekly schedule 
of, um, so like Taco Tuesday, we always have Taco Tuesday. I always do a pot roast in the winter on Wednesdays because both girls go to jujitsu and go to swimming. And we, my wife and I have jujitsu earlier in the day. So it's a, it's a run and a gun and day all day long. So I've got to have something already pre-queued, but then on other days I have two or three options for those days. And I'll query people the day before, okay, do you want this, this, or this? And they're like, I want this. Then I take that stuff out of the freezer to thaw out so it's ready because we are working with whole food generally. Even a potato, if I cut it up and dice it and make it into French fries, that still takes some time. Like right. it's it's not just like popping it in the microwave to, to make that happen. So it takes a little bit of planning. And then as many of those meals as I can... I try to make it so I've got, I, usually what I will do is cook a bunch for dinner and then that will bleed over into at least lunch the next day to cover everybody. And then the next dinner will bleed into lunch the next day and all that type of stuff. But that that pre-planning, when we don't do that, we we just make terrible decisions and yeah. and it, it's stressful and and uh, not not great. And again, this is operating from a scenario where I'm home most of the time, you know? So like if you're out of the house coming and going, then you need the, even that next layer of preparation and, and planning, which doesn't come naturally to everybody. It, and this is where some of the meals delivered programs, even some of the frozen meals, if you if you make good decisions mm -hmm. around like that, like there are some legitimately good options around that stuff now. Yeah. I, I want to circle back and, and we can kind of tie this together with the, with the meal prep and, and some of those things. But you said something earlier. So you're talking about obviously being able to, you know, minimally processed whole foods, like those are some good choices, obviously, we can go deeper into that. But you mentioned the the gut and the, the autoimmune issues. How do you figure that out? Or, or is that just blood testing you're doing? Like, I, the average person, and you know, I'm putting myself in that category of like, I don't know what blood test to ask my physician to get, I don't know where to go look potentially to figure out, you know, if, if my gut hurts, or if I, if I have some issues after I eat, what is it really? Is that just I'm not feeling well that day? You know, I don't know. So I'm kind of curious, can right. you speak on that just for a few minutes of like, how would you get tested if you think you're maybe having some, um, you know, some issues, some issues that's with a, food? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it, you know, it's funny, because your, your show is the, the, just get started. So yeah. it's kind of that in a lot of ways, you know, the beginning interface with this. And to some degree, what we're talking about in this scenario is a little bit the potentially the deeper dive. Like you've you've maybe gone in and and peeled some some other layers. For me, I so I'm five foot nine, hundred and sixty-five pounds. Uh when I developed ulcerative colitis 23 years ago, I I got down to 125 pounds because of malabsorption. Like I would eat food. And it would just blast out of me the other end, completely unchanged. And I, I was dying. Like my hair was falling out. My nails were splitting. I had horrible depression. And I figured out that I had a really profound gluten intolerance, a, a celiac disease. I'm pretty reactive to dairy. Uh, you mentioned the vegetable thing. It's taken me a long time to figure out. But like a green salad is not my friend. Like that thing causes me to run dashing to the, yeah. to the bathroom and, and uh, uh, horrible things happen. Um, most of this I have figured out through trial and error and people uh, get in and look at things like irritable bowel syndrome, um, IBS, uh, Crohn's disease, leaky gut, and you kind of get a list of symptoms. You know, these things have, have kind of a, a list of symptomology with it and you can kind of identify with that. A lot of people though, they've, they've never had 
a day of what I would consider potentially like really healthy experience in their whole life. And, and this is why in my books, I recommend a 30 day reset where people peel out all the grains, all the legumes, all the dairy to just try a really legit reset because a lot of people have never known that their gut shouldn't ache after a meal, that they shouldn't dash to the bathroom and have kind of loose stools diarrhea after a meal, um, that their hands shouldn't ache all the time due to like uh, uh, inflammatory processes. So a lot of what I recommend is more the experiential side is, is it's starting with an elimination diet so that you can say a lot of this stuff is blood sugar too. Like a lot of folks are, they're like, if I don't eat every two hours, like I get really angry and I get shaky and irritable right. and everything. This is kind of a blood sugar dysregulation story. And usually those folks do better with kind of a lower carb diet. It's not that they need to go like full Atkins or full keto, but what they find is that they oftentimes do a lot better with, with lower carb or, or lower glycemic load, and maybe a little bit more fat from like avocados, nuts, olive oil, those sorts of things. But we can kind of look at different symptoms and, and it's just so incredibly informative and powerful to have people do this elimination diet for about 30 days and just see what the difference is beginning and end. Because the, the list of, when you start listing the number of things that people experience, whether it's blood sugar related or whether it's autoimmune related, it, it just sounds, it sounds like gobbledygook because it sounds like it covers everything, but it, it kind of is everything, you know, um, reproductive issues for both men and women, infertility, polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, uh, uh, PMS, um, you know, low libido for men, sleep disturbance, like it's on and on and on. And we could dig around and do some blood work that maybe shows, okay, you look insulin resistant, you have some elevated inflammatory markers. But what I find is that for just the effort of doing an elimination diet, we can uncover all of that stuff. Like it, it ends up, instead of trying to get really granular and specific right out of the gate, we start very general, general reset diet, trying to improve sleep, maybe doing some exercise and whatnot. And let's see what the improvements are. And hopefully there, there's dramatic improvements. Hopefully the the change is worth the effort in general of, of continuing. But this is where I think we uncover a lot of these, these other situations that people had no idea that they'd been suffering with their whole life. Uh, GERD, gastroesophageal reflux, like the acid reflux. Mm -hmm. People be like, oh, my dad had it. My mom had it. It's just genetic. It's not genetic. You may have genetic predispositions, but GERD has some really high linkage with insulin resistance, like the beginning of type 2 diabetes. And again, if we remove some of these problematic foods, which are usually really dense, refined carbohydrates, these things just drop off and end up improving dramatically. What, Person what, feels better. They start sleeping better. What are uh, like elimination diet? So we've got like, what would some, let's say the first day or a couple of days, like what would someone eat if they're doing an elimination diet? Like, you know, if they follow kind of the guidelines that I, I have in my book and lots and lots of people lay these things out, but you're usually, so I have this thing called the food matrix. And you could, if, if we, uh, we could put that in the show notes, yeah. and this is the way that I really recommend helping people to, to build meals. And, um, it was born 
one day in the gym when I was talking to folks about their nutrition and this gal just kind of threw her hands up and she's like, I don't know how to eat this way. Like, I don't know how to do this. This doesn't make any sense. And, and, uh, I was like, okay, give me a list of five proteins. And so she, you know, like chicken, fish, beef, you know, we listed five proteins. Okay. Give me five vegetables. And we listed five vegetables. Give me five different cooking oils, then five different spices. So we've got a five by five matrix. There's 125 different meals in this thing. Mm -hmm. So like it could be salmon, broccoli, olive oil, ginger, salmon, broccoli, olive oil, garlic, salmon, broccoli, olive oil, cumin, you know, whatever, yeah. but, but there's all these different options there. And that's really where I start folks with protein, veggies, fruit, maybe some nuts and seeds. But in the first 30 days, I really try to get people to go to pull out the wheat in particular, the yeah. dairy in particular, maybe corn also, maybe rice also. Um, I like those things as kind of after the 30 days to reintroduce foods and see how you do with those. Mm. And and so my, my greasy used car salesman pitch is to, and we call this like a paleo diet or like a lower, like a modified Atkins, like a, you can throw a lot of different names on it, but it's a protein, it's some veggie, it's a good fat, and then some sort of spice. And that's the way that most meals are built. And, yeah. and that's what we we start with. And then down the road, we we can tinker with things. Like if people figure out, oh, I do great with corn tortillas, but I don't do so well with wheat bread. Okay, then we, we put corn tortillas in the mix or they figure out that they do wonderfully with rice, not so good with corn, not so good with wheat. Then, it, you know, we, we just um, plug that in. I don't try to, uh, my goal is not to make people's dietary approaches as constrained as possible. Yeah. I want as much latitude as possible, but in the beginning, sometimes you have to pull things back, press a reset button and yeah. then get back in and, and start doing things anew. And you know, the real extreme example of this is the carnivore diet where people will do only, you know, like ruminant meats and they don't do any vegetables and they don't do any fruit, at least for some period of time. And a lot of the people that end up doing that are really, really sick. They have autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, maybe um, uh, depression and whatnot. They may have some really significant neurological symptoms too. And what a lot of those folks find is that they they heal by and improve with this hardcore, you know, uh, carnivore approach initially. And then they find that they can reintroduce some foods further down the road. Once their gut is healed, once they start start getting some improvements generally in their health, and they they find usually that they've got more latitude than what they started with on pure carnivore, but they're maybe not able to be as healthy as they want to be while eating like a standard American diet. Yeah. Well, I, I think, that, I mean, again, I'm not a physician. I'm not a researcher. I'm not, I'm just a, a, a human being trying to figure it out. Like, and I just know over the years what seems to work and, and tell me if I'm right or wrong in this, but I think we're on the same page. Like what seems to work is try to eliminate as much processed food as you can take out the breads. Like again, if you can, like a lot of the, and, and I even look at like the difference between maybe this is different, but like you take a, a, a bread, I won't name any names, but sits on the shelf for two months versus the ones that have like three ingredients. Those are probably different right. even. Right. So the one with a couple ingredients so that that was a big thing when I worked with the nutritionist a few years ago, you know, she was like, Brian, all the healthy food is on the outer rim of the grocery store. Like if you just take, start trying to use the outer rim and don't go internally as much, you're going to find that you make better selections. So it's one of these yep. things like over time, because I, I had I, you know, 
I don't know what it is. I got hooked on watching Forks Over Knives 10 years ago. And, you know, that got me on one path. And then I did, I was pescatarian for three years. Um, but again, as I learned more and it expanded, now over, I actually, and I'm curious your thoughts on this as we're talking about, you know, carnivore meat. I've been, you know, doing a lot of stuff uh, with the animal-based Paul Saladino and and those type of things. And I've actually found the last four, four and a half months doing it, I actually feel maybe the best I've felt in years. Um, yeah. And I don't know if it's just because I, again, it's one of the, the healthy user bias. Is it because I'm not eating a lot of the crap or is it because just what I'm eating is so good? Like, I, you know, I don't know, but I'm curious yeah. your thoughts. That's a, that's a lot of roundabout racing. It seems like, yeah, if 80% of the time, 85% of the time you're eating fairly healthy foods, there's some latitude there to, you know, we can, we're not going to be perfect always, you know? Yeah. You, it's, so the, the perfection thing I think is, um, one of the guarantees of ensuring failure, ironically, yeah. uh, people will start a new program. They get a week into it. They've, they've been eating off their meal plan and then they end up at like, uh, the in-laws and there's some meal that's off plan. They eat that meal. They beat themselves up. They're like, well, I, I failed. I didn't stay perfect to this thing. And then they just abandon the week or the month or the year that they've had on this thing and versus recognizing that they're only one meal away from being back on plan. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if we eat three meals a day, seven days a week, that's 21 meals. Ideally we should be maybe 18 to 19 of those 21 meals on point and two to three of those meals a week could, could be, you know, some deviation. If we're on point two or three meals a week and we're off point, you know, 18 meals, we're just, right. it, it, it's yeah. bullshit. You know, yeah. we're, we're fooling ourselves. Right. But by and large, most of our meals should be something, again, that like our grandparents would more or less recognize this as like food and, right. and not dessert effectively. But that perfectionism is poison for success, long-term success, like if you miss one workout, okay, you miss the workout, do the next workout. If you didn't have great options at a meal, okay, you didn't have great options at one meal, but the previous 18 meals, you were on point, high five yourself. And then just the next meal, get, get back on, on point, you know, so that, that perfectionism, it, people will purposefully set themselves up and it looks like they're being really high-minded They're like, I'm going to do this thing. Perfect. I'm an all or nothing type of person. It's like, that's bullshit. Like, it, it, are, are you that degree of rigidity guarantees failure versus the person who's like, most of the time I'm good. But like, if I go out with some friends, I'm going to have the nachos, I'm going to have a couple of drinks, and then I'm back on point with my stuff the next day. And that to me seems very reasonable. You know, people will be like, oh, this is all so extreme and everything. It's like, well, I eat really good. 18 of my meals so that I can go hang out with friends and family and kick my heels up three meals a week. That seems pretty reasonable yeah, to me. That's, fair, that's a fair trade yeah. out there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it seems like it to me. Yeah. Well, when you're, and when you're thinking about it again, we, we've been kind of trying, I'm trying to stay focused. I know I go off on so many tangents, but like, I'm like folks on like, if someone could repeat a day, then they could do it the next day and so on and try to get close. Yep. So obviously we've talked about some of the different stuff folks can do. What about the time of day? You know, I was doing intermittent fasting for a few years. And again, with a lot of things I've been at least observing over the last probably year or so, it seems like I've actually noticed um, I do better when I do eat a little earlier now, 9, 10 a.m. in the morning because of, yep. I mean, you could fact check me on this. I, I, I Maybe I'm right or wrong, but around testosterone with protein and, and you know, how that actually gives you um, 
a better increase, if you will. So anyways, I've been toying around. Again, I, I know enough to be dangerous. I'm kind of curious your thoughts on time of day to eat and especially the end of night. When when that last meal should happen for folks? Oh man, this is it. it it's it's interesting. Um, I wrote my first published article on intermittent fasting in 2005, oh, and wow. I was really excited and geeked out on it. And it went mainly out to like the the CrossFit community because that's really the the folks that I was serving at the time. And by 2006, I deeply regretted publishing that thing because like you already had people who were type A, over the top, overachievers, burning the candle at both ends. And you had people, I, they would ping me an email and they're like, hey man, I was killing it, but then my hair started falling out. I don't have a libido the last six months and my, all my performance is retrograde. And I'm like, well, tell me what you're eating. It's like, well, I intermittent fast 20 or 22 hours a day. I had five grams of carbs last month and I, I do six wads a week yeah. and but on my day off I do hot yoga and a, a 15 mile ruck march with a 40 pound pack and it, it's just like intermittent fasting is a stress carb restriction is a stress exercise is a stress any one of those things could be good could be a great tool but what people end up doing is they end up stacking them together and they're not additive they're multiplicative you know so calorie restriction and it intense exercise. If you've got a hundred pounds of weight to lose, that's one thing because your body is cannibalizing the excess calories on your person. If you're relatively lean, like we are, mm -hmm. that's a disaster. Like your body is going to be in, in complete hibernation mode at that point, because we are killing ourselves. So it's going to shut down our thyroid. It's going to shut down our sex hormones. So the, the different ways that people can tweak nutrition you can weigh and measure your food, which is one, you know, basically calorie counting. And it works for some people, you know, like some folks are, are very successful with that. That's usually what we're told to do out of like the registered dietetic scene. And maybe the, if it fits your macros crowd, um, the, the, if it fits your macros crowd are usually pretty savvy about the need for adequate protein, at least so that like, they understand that protein is really important for satiety. Um, another way to tackle things is the composition of the food. And what's really interesting about that is we always, it, the zone is maybe one of the only things where they're kind, kind of trying to tell us to have kind of a balanced macronutrient ratio. And it, it, it works okay, but what are we always told to do? Uh, high carb, low fat, or higher fat, lower carb. And what that ends up doing is it ends up minimizing the amount of really hyper palatable foods. Like you, there are no good vegan nachos. There is no good vegan pizza. And the same is said of keto nachos and keto pizza. Like I've done pizzas where like I'll, I'll crisp meat and I'll put cheese and sauce on it and everything. And it's pretty good, but it's not pizza. I mean, right. it, 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 it's just not. And so the, the, the composition of the food, the uh, kind of food quality is another way of do that, of tackling this stuff. And it's usually either higher carb or lower or, or lower carb are, are the kind of variables there. And I think that different folks will respond um, favorably to that depending on their, their individual situation. I will say that I think in Barry Sears and some other people have kind of alluded this probably about 25% of the population 
does better on kind of a higher carb, minimally processed, lower to moderate fat approach, kind of a bodybuilding approach. Mm -hmm. And I think about 75% of, of uh, you know, like westernized populations probably would benefit from some amount of, of carb capping, you know, 100, 100 grams a day, something like that. And they would probably do well with that. But then the other lever that we have is timing. And this is where like intermittent fasting can can come in. And I like that as a tool, but I think it, it can be taken to extremes. And, and again, what I find is, again, it, it depends a little bit on the person. If you have a lot of weight to lose, that intermittent fasting, like maybe not eating until 1 p.m. is beneficial because it's a great calorie capping strategy. Mm-hmm. But once you get down to a pretty lean level, what I find is that people end up benefiting from maybe three meals a day, two meals and a snack, like that that um, really protracted, uh, uh, you know, fasting window can be problematic. And the best that I understand of like the the total timing, it seems to be metabolically beneficial to eat more of our calories earlier in the day, more of our carbs earlier in the day. But socially, that's very difficult to do. It's easier to skip breakfast than it is to skip dinner. Like I have, I have kids and like, I could blow through not eating breakfast pretty easy and nobody would notice, but like sitting down to eat dinner together and me skipping it is, is problematic. Um, But again, at the end of the day, I think the biggest factor in all of this is that we just need to figure out a strategy to not overeat which is a non-trivial thing in a world where we we have like infinite access to different foods and flavors and palate experiences. And so when I say we just need to not overeat, like I'm not, I'm not being trite about that. Like that is ultimately the thing that we have to figure out, but it's not easy to do in many, many regards. So uh, maybe you, you weigh and measure your food. Maybe you figure out a strategy a little bit more like what I've done, which is a compositionally based approach. I tend to eat lower carb and that makes it pretty easy for me. And then the other side of this is the intermittent fasting where the the time restriction, there are people out there, they will not change what they're going to eat. But if you tell them, okay, eat between um, 9am and 4pm, but eat whatever you want to eat. They still have their beer, they still have their nachos, they still have their pizza, but they end up eating less and their metabolic parameters end up being improved and they end up being healthier because they're not eating beer, nachos and pizza at 10 o'clock at night and then going to bed. Well, I think that's the, and that's the point I was, I was getting to. So I appreciate you saying that. It's like, yeah, the whole intermittent fasting again, because I was on board with that and I still do it from time to time, but you know, the 12, 1 PM, you can backtrack that as long as you're, I, I think the biggest thing I've learned is like, you know, two to three hours before you're going to sleep, if you're stopping eating, right? So maybe that's 7 p.m., let's say, or something like that. And then you eat around 9 a.m. That's still a good, you know, whatever that is, 14 hours where you're yep. going without eating. Like that's a pretty good, you know, in terms of your body being able to digest and stuff. I think the problem, and we've talked about this, I think earlier was, you know, at 9 p.m. you go for the ice cream or 10 p.m. you go for the ice cream. And right. then you wake up at 6.30 a.m., 7, running to work. And then you pile down some, you know, processed burrito or something like that from the fridge, like that type of, you know, that doesn't work over time because obviously it not only does it bring in the the tight time window, but also brings in probably more processed food or things that are unhealthy for you. Right. Yeah. And you, you, and you never, with a schedule like that, you never tend to actually be satiated. So it never sends that signal to the brain. I'm full mm-hmm. uh, because these right. processed foods tend to be kind of lower in protein. It's, it's interesting. Uh, Dr. Michael Eads pointed this out ages ago. If you go and look at the um, 
the diets that are fed to to uh, pigs in particular, there's certain diets for like keeping the pigs healthy long term. Mm -hmm. Like if they have a really good bloodline and they want them to be fit and healthy so that they can breed them and make a lot of money off of them, it's a a, a carbohydrate restricted diet. Interestingly, mm -hmm. and then if they um, if they want to put fat on the animal, it's about 17% protein, high carb, moderate to high fat, which is identical. Like literally the macros are identical to what the average American eats because that low protein provides just enough protein so you can grow, yeah. but not enough protein that you're actually satisfied. When people eat out, ad eat adequate protein, they tend to not overeat. And we, within our, our healthy rebellion community, um, we have folks that have followed my work for 10 plus years and, and had good success, but they still had some body composition issues. And when we make them weigh and measure their food for like a week, they're under eating protein by like 50%. Mm -hmm. And and my benchmarks on protein uh, go, the low end is a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight or a gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight. So I'm 160 pounds, 10% uh, body fat. So I've got about 140 pounds of of lean body mass. So like my protein that I try to bracket is the low end about 140 grams a day, the high end about 170 grams a day. Okay. And when I do that, it's super easy for me to, to not overeat in that context. Okay, cool. Well, and, and I have a feeling during this, this episode, we're, uh, we're probably opening more doors than we're closing. So people are going to, we'll, we'll give them some links to find some additional insight on this. Um, so this is a really good discussion. I, I wanted to ask about a couple of things and this is more around, you know, with electrolytes and, you know, alcohol consumption, a few other things maybe on the on the side of just kind of your normal, um, you know, whole foods or processed foods and those type of things. So from an electrolyte, I want to make sure I talk about this. Obviously, you know, I'm a big fan of Element, so I'll plug, <laughs> we'll plug Element here. And I don't, I mean, partly, you know, it could be a placebo effect. Partly I feel great when I, you know, so I believe it's working. And I want to get, I want you to be able to share with me kind of the insight of, of how it works because one of the things I didn't realize is that the sodium deficiency potentially that, and, and, and how that all works. Um, but can you share a little bit about electrolytes, why they're important, especially if you're working out? Um, and I want to go down that rabbit hole just for a minute. Yeah. And I really wish I had known more about this like 20 years ago because yeah. it, I struggled a lot. But I guess at kind of a brass tax level, if people remember like the the Krebs cycle or the TCA cycle from you know, high school or college biology, where we, we generate energy, we break down, you know, food into um, uh, ATP, the way that we generate energy for nerve impulses, muscle contractions are largely driven by sodium potassium pumps. Like we get these things called action potentials that fire muscles, fire nerves. While I'm talking, my body is, is breaking down food for energy and that energy is being partitioned in, in a way that sodium is being increased in concentration outside of cells and potassium is being increased in concentration inside of cells. And then when that sodium and potassium kind of go through these gates in our cells, kind of like water going through a dam, mm -hmm. that energy is harnessed. And, and this is the way that we make all these nerve impulses and everything. So all of our, all of life is driven by these electrolyte mediated sodium potassium pumps. And that's just kind of one layer of this story. It, it influences how much fluid volume we have, the way our heart beats and, and the, the way um, the heart contracts, uh, 
removing toxins out of our body via via the urine, you know, like on and on and on. But really at, at the most fundamental level, the sodium potassium um, pumps are what drives life. And if we look at the things in our bodies that are the most tightly regulated, pH and electrolytes are arguably the most tightly regulated things in our, our physiology. Like if pH and our body goes up or down by just a little bit, we will get sick and or die. And electrolytes, if they get off by just a little bit, we will get sick or or potentially die from that. And so this is, um, it, 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 and on the way to getting sick or even getting to cramping, it's really well documented in the literature that when, in particular, our sodium is deficient, we lose fine motor skills, we get uh, mentally fatigued, brain fog, like a lot of these things that we usually ascribe to like needing a shot of caffeine mm -hmm. or like low blood sugar is actually more attributable to um, to low low sodium status. And uh, when I was a kid, I was still, I'm almost 51, I was still right at that cusp where like my football coaches would say, you know, chew on a, a salt tablet and then just sip water to satiety. And then sodium became this demonized part of health because- mm -hmm hypertension is a part of, of, uh, high blood uh, hypertension, high blood pressure is this part of cardiovascular disease. And it's, it's legit. It's a super important part, but sodium is a bystander in that it's not a cause the cause of insulin. It, the cause of hypertension is insulin resistance, which causes us to retain excess sodium, which then elevates our blood pressure. But when we put people on low sodium diets, their blood pressure doesn't really go down because, their body will will extract sodium out of their bones or retain any amount of sodium that they get from the diet. So this is where like low sodium diets are really underwhelming in their efficacy with lowering blood pressure. But one of the understood side effects of low carb diets and fasting is that it will lower blood pressure because there's this process called the naturesis of fasting where we lose salt because of that low insulin environment. And people will kind of make fun of it. They're, they're like, oh, you went on Atkins and you lost 10 pounds in the first week, but it was just water weight. Well, that just water weight was their hypertension. Now mm. they're at like a normotensive level and and their cardiovascular disease risk is is much diminished. And I know I covered like a, a bunch of different stuff there, but whether we're talking performance or just general health, like uh, electrolytes are just this um, really foundational um, piece of this whole story. There was just a news piece that popped up the other day that some scientists were reviewing um, lab work and kind of the story around when Bruce Lee died. And they think that it was due to hyponatremia and uh, low sodium. And so he had gotten on this kick of eating almost no sodium and working out like crazy. And then he took, he had a really bad headache, which people can get uh, bad headaches from low sodium because they get cerebral edema. The, the, uh, uh, instead of having adequate sodium to keep fluid in the right compartments in, in the body and in particular in the brain, low sodium will allow edema to occur in the brain. And it, it we don't know for sure because we can't do an autopsy on him now, but the, the autopsy that that confirmed his death suggested cerebral edema was the cause. And one of the primary causes of cerebral edema is hyponatremia, low sodium status. So wow. one of the icons of like fitness and, and martial arts and whatnot might have died because he got on this super low sodium kick combined with a super high activity level. 
Well, and one of the things I noticed, because you, you mentioned about like the brain fog and the cramps, I've actually noticed those have pretty much gone away the last, mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 it's probably been what, maybe four months or so using Element. Um, and I'd used some other electrolyte drinks and, and you know, mixes in the past, but it, it, for whatever reason with Element, it seemed like, one, it tastes really good, but that's always helpful. But two is, right. yeah, because I'll actually drink it, I'll put at least one pouch a day, if not two, but I'll be drinking it throughout the day. And, but I generally work out around lunchtime. So what I notice is, so if, you know, kind of connect the dots, I'll eat somewhere around nine to 10 AM. I'm working at, and it's a lighter meal. I'll, I'll work out around lunch and I'm drinking the element a little before, but then during. And like I said, that my, that brain fog that you talked about the, the kind of drop that happens. I haven't noticed that. So I'm kind of like, I'm like, okay, it's working. I don't know why it's working, but because I don't know the, the the science behind it. So I appreciate you sharing that uh, a little bit. How does it work? I got into a, a discussion in, around Thanksgiving uh, with some family around this is what happens. So if you're someone that's, let's say, fairly healthy, you work out a lot, you're, we'll, we'll call you kind of one of the, the standard bearers of health. And then you have someone else that's not, that eats a lot of high sodium, you know, maybe unhealthy foods. If they're using something like Element, does that matter? Like, do they would that be too much sodium for them, or how, like how does someone determine if it's at an unhealthy the, the level? Right is, there a, is there is yeah. there a right dose? I don't know. I, yeah, there, there there is, and it, it's honestly one of the more difficult things to to pin down because there's a ton of different variables on it. Um, how big is the person? What type of environment do they live in? Like when I we spent two years in Texas and my electrolyte needs like doubled compared to what it was when we lived in Reno, which is, is high desert, cooler environment, like hot, humid in Texas, like pretty much year round. Like we had this narrow window of time, like January, February, where it was, where it was cold, but, um, uh, heat and humidity, physical activity can, can change things. Um, the, what, there's a lot of different angles on this that I could take, but one, one of the realities is that, 85% 85% of the sodium that people consume is part of processed foods. So people are getting the bulk of their sodium via highly processed foods, which is not good. Um, the processed foods tend to be easy to overeat. That tends to fo- foster insulin resistance. When we're insulin resistant, we retain sodium, and then we end up in this hypertensive state. And someone like that really shouldn't necessarily use something like like Element. And this is kind of an interesting aside. What we've noticed and I don't have a, a scrap of scientific data on this. It's very anecdotal, but what we've noticed is that when people are low in sodium, if they they grab something like an element and they start drinking it, they taste sweet. They don't taste salt until they'll sip on it, sip on it, sip on it. And then maybe they're, they're like one pack in and they're starting down their second pack. And then they're like, oh, that last one tasted pretty salty. And then they're done. And so I think that there's some sort of a, a, taste mechanism there when people have adequate sodium the stuff tastes really salty and when they don't have adequate sodium it doesn't taste salty Mm -hmm. so there's kind of a self-limiting thing there i i've seen some folks that you know maybe eat more of a standard american diet aren't super healthy and when they try element they're like oh my god this is salty and i think those people their their thirst mechanism taste mechanism around sodium is just telling them you don't necessarily need this stuff. Whereas somebody that is uh, high motor output, maybe eating even a little bit on the lower carb side, but it doesn't have to be just, you know, more minimally processed carbs. If you are eating minimally processed foods, 
automatically your sodium intake plummets. But yet if you're, if you're eating better and you're active, then your sodium needs increase. So, and when we look at uh, traditional cuisine, Japanese, uh, Mediterranean, there's usually a lot of salty side dishes that people used a lot adjunctively to their main meal. And I think that that's where people in traditional cuisine, they weren't like mega salting their food, but they would have like some miso or kimchi or something like pepperoncinis from, from more like Italian type stuff. That's very, very salty that people would supplement. And and you find that they get a couple of grams of sodium from that stuff. And I think that that's where historically people have, have balanced that stuff out. But the, um, the, the difficulty in knowing exactly what somebody needs day to day is, is again, size activity level, like just going a, a sedentary day versus an active day could double your electrolyte needs. Oh, wow. So you might go from needing five grams on a sedentary day to 10 grams on an active day. Um, we've done work with some NHL players, uh, pretty big guys, 200, 210 pounds. You know, they're not huge, but they're, they're decent sized guys. And they will, they'll, they'll put a patch on them that collects sweat and, and will analyze for both the water content and the sodium content. And when we know is the size of the patch and we know the person's height and dimensions, we can calculate their total surface area. Mm -hmm. So we get a sense of how much uh, sodium and water these guys lose. These guys can lose 10 pounds of water and 10 grams, 10,000 milligrams of sodium in a hard game or practice session. And then the medical community says that we should eat less than two grams of sodium per day. And for these athletes, that's an absolute disaster. And what, what's interesting there is the American Council of Sports Medicine guidelines recommend somewhere between seven and 10 grams of sodium per day for athletes who are at high work output, heat, humidity, all that type of stuff. So heat and humidity can uh, double electrolyte needs. Physical activity can double electrolyte needs. Um, men uh, sweat differently than women. Women tend to have more sweat glands per square inch, and it's it's more of like a mist. It's actually a more efficient sweating mechanism, but uh, men tend to create more droplets and also lose more sodium in those droplets. And so we have what, what are called super sweaters. Mm. So you have like some, some gender-based issues, you have genetic issues, you have environmental issues, you have the activity issues. So there's a lot of moving parts there, you know, and, and the, the most um, accurate thing I have is just having people kind of go by, by taste and feel like if they're even pickle juice, it's interesting. If somebody is really low in sodium, if you, if you have them grab some, some pickle juice and they'll swig it down, it tastes a little salty, but it mainly just tastes good because they're really desperately in need of that salt. And if they keep working on it, keep working on it, they hit a point where they're like, Oh, okay, that's enough. And they're totally, they're, they're done on it. And so I think that that, that taste mechanism is a, uh, a really underappreciated piece of this whole story. And I'm hoping to get some research on it at some point, like being able to look at um, long-term dietary intake of sodium because moment to moment stuff doesn't tell us everything because we can pull sodium out of our bones, but looking at also plasma levels of sodium relative to um, the way that people are perceiving the taste of sodium and okay. see if there's something real there. It's, it's anecdotal and it seems compelling, but um, I, I, again, like I may be, we may be imagining things, but it, it seems pretty compelling thus far. 
One more question on the and electrolytes, because obviously with element, it's sodium, potassium, magnesium. So I take some magnesium at night. I've been testing this for a little while to like, you know, try to calm me down. It seems like, again, it's working from mm -hmm. like, what I can tell. Um, what's the, how does the magnesium work in the element different than like what I would take at night? Is that the same? Is that, is it a calming? Is it something different? I, I, I don't know. Me Mechanistically, it, it's probably doing the same thing. We we do a really small amount of magnesium and a really highly absorbable form, the magnesium glycinate, because uh, uh, things like magnesium citrate, magnesium oxide are technically uh, 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 they're laxatives, so they're they're actually administered when people are are constipated because it mm. pulls fluid into the stool and and you know kind of kind of blows things out. They're they're very poorly absorbed, but Magnesium is a critical cofactor in muscle contraction, relaxation. It's a cofactor in ATP production. Uh, you need adequate magnesium to, to buffer and counteract uh, calcium. And it's important in the vitamin D calcium kind of kind of circle. And I, I am mainly stealing this stuff from Chris Masterjohn, who does a much better treatment of it. So like if you wanted a super deep dive on that, I would get Chris on here. He... Um, I'm an idiot on that stuff compared to what he is. He really goes okay. <laughs> deep on that stuff. But uh, magnesium is an important cofactor in just kind of muscle relaxation. And this is where uh, doing some amount of magnesium, particularly in the evening, for a lot of people ends up helping to improve sleep quality. Mm. What, uh, anything else on your, I, I, I have 20 other things on this list. We're not going to get to time-wise, maybe down the road, if you're game for a part two, we should do it. Um, well, anything else on your mind? Maybe it's something new you've been researching or, or thinking about. Anything that you know you would share with folks to to at least consider as they, you know, go into the new year in 2023 and beyond. Oh man, you know one one thing I've been noodling on is um, so I, I I'm I'll turn 51 in in January, and I'm fortunate in that uh, although I've had some health issues in the past, like I've I've figured out a strategy for kind of managing those things pretty well, but being in my fifties now, I kind of look around at my peer group and it's really remarkable. The Delta between folks who take care of themselves and don't like it, it it's shocking. Like it, at this point, like it, uh, I see other folks from like high school and whatnot. And I, I swear they look like 20 years older than, than I do at this point. And like their physical capacity seems like they're, they're 20 years diminished. And one of these things that's interesting about being at this middle age level or beyond middle age, if you've never been in shape before, but you get in shape now, it's like you cheated the whole system because the rest of your life can be absolutely amazing. You can be strong. You can have great cardio. You can have, a, it, so there's these two related things lifespan, which is how long we live, and then health span, which is how healthy we are within our lifespan. But folks who get in shape in, in middle age or late middle age, it's as if they never did it something the whole of their life previously. It could be as if they didn't do that. It, 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 when you compare people who've been uh, healthy and active their whole life versus people who maybe weren't that healthy, but get in shape mm -hmm. in, in middle age, late middle age, there's almost no difference between them. So it's almost like you cheated, but you got to get in and actually do it now, you know? And so I would just implore people and sometimes you got to find a why, 
you know, like my dad it, it ended up having type two diabetes for a long time. I did diabetic wound care on him where they cut off his toe, then part of his foot and all of his foot and a below the knee amputation. And I had to do the diabetic wound care on all that stuff. And it sucked. And I swore to myself, I will never put my kids through that. Like it was, it was awful. Um, I want to be around and hopefully get to know some grandkids. I had kids kind of later in the, in the game, you know, I'm 50 years old and I have eight and 10 year olds. So like, I'm going to have to like live pretty well to, to, you know, but unless my, my kids end up going the uh, 16 and pregnant route, which I'm not really advocating for, but, um, I, I'm going to have to take good care of myself to be there for them as long as I can be and hopefully get to know some grandkids. But I have some really profound reasons for doing this. And hopefully folks find a reason for getting in shape, eating better. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It can be incremental steps. Or if you're kind of a tear the bandaid off, jump, jump in whole hog, that's fine too. Like there's different ways of doing this, but I just, it's like cheating if you recognize that if you're still alive and say like you're, you're even if you're in your sixties and you just get in and start doing it, you can have a profoundly improved quality of life and potentially dramatically improved lifespan and, and commensurate health span with that. And that just seems so cool. Like yeah. versus the understood, like cognitive decline, physical decline, loss of strength, loss of stamina, loss of the ability to do the things that I think people want to do, even, you know, if it's just going for a walk and stuff like that. So just get started, like yeah. just go do it, you know, and cheat the system. If you haven't, if you haven't been in shape, if you haven't eaten well before, just fucking do it now. And, and like, feel like a champion. Like I cheated everybody. All these people wore out their knees because they were youth athletes and they did this and they did that. You didn't do all that stuff, but now you can be this stud athlete if you want to, as you go into your later years and you kind of like cheated the system. And I guess that's one of the things I've been noodling on yeah. of late. When I look at the research on folks who are, are starting into diet and lifestyle changes, maybe a little bit later in life that they get these profound benefits and, and there's almost no, um, there's almost no limit to the benefits that you get from the training. Like the more you invest kind of the more you get out of it, do some strength training, do some cardio, get outside, have community, eat better. And, and the, the, like you said, there's a million different ways of eating better. Like we've touched on some different angles here, like do a month of vegan, do a month of paleo, see how you look, feel and perform on both of them see which one you, you like with that stuff, but just get in and get started. And, and, uh, right off into the sunset yeah. and, and win this thing. You know? Well, and, you, yeah. and you're right. And, and two quick points on that. One is what I've at least found is, you know, like the action creates a better mood. So like folks are like, I don't feel like doing that or whatever. Well, actually getting out there and going, walking around the block, running, going to the gym, whatever it is, you will feel better. Your body's going to ultimately, yes, it will change physically, but also mentally. I find like, when I, like even today, like I'm going to go work out. I normally don't do Thursday workouts, but I'm going to go work out tonight. Cause I'm like, I'm just feeling it. Like I got to get out of here and, and move because right. I know that's, what's going to feel like for my body. Um, and the second part is one of the things, and, and th this is an excuse I learned or I used earlier on when I was younger was like, well, I don't know enough. There's not, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not a doctor. There's a lot of, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. Well, now there's so much access to information, right? 
you think about, I mean, your podcast, I mean, it's, I mean we can name 20 podcasts around fitness and health and nutrition. There's videos, there's whatever. So the access to information is there, but it, as you mentioned earlier, it's simple, right? Whole foods, eliminate a lot of the processed foods, right? Be smarter about what you're putting in your body, but you don't have to be perfect with it. And if we do that, we're going to have some success at least on the, on the health front, you know? Huge success. Um, Peter Tia made this, this point uh, in one of his podcasts. The biggest benefit is going from sedentary to just walking. Mm -hmm. Like that's almost the, the biggest benefit that you get out of all of this stuff. Like if, if you just walk a little bit, um, there's this massive benefit relative to, to just being sedentary. But as we age, we tend to lose muscle mass, lose cardiovascular capacity. And this is, is kind of like, if you think about like, uh, an investment account, like we squirrel money away because we want to retire and then we want to have enough money so that maybe uh, one, hopefully we don't run out of money before we die. And maybe there's something there for our, our family and all that stuff. If you get in better shape, if you lift some weights, if you do a little bit of cardio, it doesn't take a lot, a couple of days a week, 30 minutes a whack. And, and like in this day and age, like I, I have a cold garage in, in Montana, but I have a nice TV in there. Yeah. And my wife and I, we have a rower, we have a, 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 a salt bike, and then we have ropes and we'll put on shows like, um, Yellowstone or, or, uh, uh, stranger things. And that's when we watch TV, mm -hmm. we get up in the morning and first thing out of the gate, we get a cup of coffee. We go out there and we do 30 to 60 minutes of cardio and watch the shows that we want to watch. And we both enjoy that. Yeah. It, it gets us, you know, launched out of the gate, but what it's really doing is it's building a, a an expense account, a, a retirement account. So that as I age, I'm going to lose some of that, but I'm going to lose it at a slower rate. One, I'm going to start with more. And I'm going to lose it at a slower rate than if I was completely sedentary. And the bastard of what happens when people are sedentary is you don't notice it until it whittles into your, your activities of daily living. Yeah. The, the set of stairs that you have gone up and down 30 years, the day that you have lost the cardiovascular capacity to go up it without stopping, you're, you're in deep, you're in deep trouble then. Like you can still get after it. You can still bring it back, but you, you had years, you had decades potentially that you could have been buffering against that, that you could have been forestalling that, that decline and have more in your expense account so that you, you yeah. can live better. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like, I, I know where the, where Peter talks a lot about, it's not just, you know, to do, it's not like you're going to do like, you know, whatever bar muscle ups or something when you're 70, but like to actually be able to not fall and break your hip, just to be able to yep. be stable. Like those type of things is why you want to build strength and why yep. you want to stay in shape, but just for general life purposes, you know? Absolutely. So I, I, I know that's a, a big thing that he talks about a lot. So, yeah. Rob, man, I could talk to you for hours here. This is awesome. Um, last thing, where can folks, where's the best place online? Where do you hang out the most? Where can folks say hi to you? I, I do a lot of writing for Element, so drinkelement.com. We have a great blog over there, and I, I do a lot of writing for that. And then robwolf.com is kind of where you can find books, uh, my podcast, the Healthy Rebellion Radio. And if folks want to check out some things like Sacred Cow, like one of my my real passions is this regenerative ag scene. And we have both the, the book and film called Sacred Cow. So if you have some questions around the environmental, ethical, and health considerations of a meat-inclusive food system, we really go deep on that stuff. And I super wow. encourage people to check that yeah. out because I... 
I know that that is a big deal, like climate change and health and food access are really hot topics right now. And there are some some folks that are pretty emphatic that, you know, say like grazing animals are the the most dangerous and deleterious thing to our, our world. Maybe they're right, but maybe they're wrong. And if they're wrong, they're steering us down this very dangerous path. And if we want to do something good around climate change, it, it we need good information. And I think the information that's being peddled is is terrible and myopic and and uh yeah, I'll kind of leave I, it at that. Well, I that's totally a whole agree. Other huge no, I, topic. I yeah. would I would love to talk actually I was funny, I have a note here I was gonna ask you about Will Harris. I know he was on Joe Rogan recently with White Oak Farms and um, yeah, and kind of your thoughts around that because that's that's I mean, that's what I believe too. I'm kind of a believer in the regenerative farming. Mm -hmm. I think that's something we have to, you know, think about going forward. So that that might be a whole. You, that might you be know, a whole there's a let, let me see if I can I I can ping you some links, but there was just this great study. Uh, large grazing animals can offset climate effects. Sixteen year uh, study in the India's Himalayan region confirms that scientists have largely believed that large grazing animals play a vital role in stabilizing soil carbon and mitigating the effects of climate change. So we've been told there, there was a, there were some credible people within the scientific community that said that 78% of climate change effects are caused by methane emissions from grazing animals. Yeah. This was patently false. Like the, the real, total in, uh, input there was closer to 3% and it ignores that methane is part of a carbon cycle. It's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that gets brought into a plant, the plant gets eaten, mm -hmm. then it can be released as either carbon dioxide or methane. And so it's part of a cycle. It needs to be looked at very, very differently. And it ignores that grazing animals on grasslands can actually sequester massive amounts of carbon underground. Yeah. The science there is emerging because there's more and more effort being put into delineating that, but the mainstream media, social media, corporations, uh, governmental agencies, none of them support this stuff. And I know it, it sounds like conspiracy theory and all this, this stuff. And, and this is where maybe if you are cool with me coming back on and bringing down property values, we could do a deep dive into the, <laughs> Absolutely. You, you know, all of, all Would of this type it. of thing. But it, it's, um, I'm not a climate change denier. Climate change is a real thing. We need to do stuff to address it. But my, my analogy with this is if we are a brain surgeon, we're going to get in and we're going to do surgery in somebody's brain. We want great vision. We want great tactile ability. We don't want goggles that flip the world upside down and we don't want on oven mitts. That is a, a, a shite way to interact with the environment. That is a non, it, we're not interacting with reality as it, as it's truly there. We we've got this weird kind of filter going on in my opinion. And in, in the case that I make uh, in our book and film, and then, you know, uh, research papers like this, decentralized regenerative agriculture, I think is one of the strongest tools we have to fight climate change, mm. but yet we're being told that we should be shutting this stuff down. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong, but let's have a conversation around that and let's beat me into submission yeah. <laughs> or, or, you know, and I'm like, okay, fine. But, but, um, I, I swear every day more and more and more data comes in confirming that the, you know, uh, 
the industrial row crop food system is the problem in this story. And that is not what I'm advocating for. Um, and, and, and it's a lot to unpack. It's uh, when we turned in the, the uh, rough draft for that book, it was 600 pages long and we had to get it down to 300 pages. And I, I will acknowledge uh, Ben Bella, our publisher. And by, by the way, that all five of the big publishers passed on Sacred Cow. None of them would touch it. Wow. Now, both of my previous books have sold over a million copies. And so like, I should be able to write a, a blank check for, they're like, we won't publish this book, but any other book you want to write, we'll publish. And I'm like, no, I want to publish this one. All of the big five publishers pass on it. Ben Bella agreed to publish it. And they are the folks who published the China study, the T. Colin Campbell China study, Forks Over Knives, yeah. the pro-vegan thing. And when the when the staff read that, they're like, I'm not sure if I totally buy all of this, but if this is remotely true, what you guys are suggesting, everybody needs to at least be exposed to this as an alternate you know, explanation for what we're seeing. Yeah. So it was a vegan publisher that published wow. our book about cows potentially saving the climate change crisis. Wow, that's, so, that's a that lot. doesn't of, mean it's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, but again, I but think- it, it should it, be compelling. Yeah. The, I think that's the big thing is the open dialogue. Let's talk about it. Let's yep. figure it out. Let's, you know, I, I think when doors are shut, unfortunately, and it's one viewpoint, you can't get to the bottom of anything, you know? Right, yeah. right. And, and, you know, um, good science will survive the scrutiny of, of millions of eyeballs and shitty science will get ground to dust. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, the, and this gets into conspiracy theory. And again, like, I, I don't, it's almost better to say less on these topics than more because people are like, I don't know, this guy's kind of a kook. But um, what I'm advocating for is that a lot more people are in the food production system, not fewer. There's six companies that produce about 95% of the food that the world eats right now. Mm -hmm. I think there should be millions of small scale food producers. And I, it, and I think that those food producers should be tied in with Costco and Walmart, and we should be buying more of our local food locally, mm -hmm. but at convenient to reach locations. The way that our food system is set up right now like beef that is raised in the American, the middle of America is shipped to Colorado to be processed. And then it's shipped to New York to be sold while there are New York farmers and ranchers that yeah. their, their stuff is, it, it's crazy. It is an absolutely backwards and broken system. There's a lot of, a lot of nuance and a lot of important stuff that needs to be dug into it. So again, like if, if you're willing for me to bring down property values and talk about that stuff, um, I'm super passionate about it. Like this will, probably be the thing that I spend the next 20 years of my life um, yeah. fighting for is to have this conversation around regenerative ag. No, we're going to do it. 2023. Let's do it. I'm going to, okay. I'm, I'm going to mark okay. it down. We'll set it up. But uh, Rob, cool. this was awesome, man. I, I certainly appreciate it. And thank you so much for joining the podcast. I know I'm, I'm assuming a lot of folks got a lot out of this episode. Thank you. Hey everyone. And just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianandraco.com, and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions, where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in and have a phenomenal day.